You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Perhaps a loved one has died and you awake to find them standing by your bed. Or you pass a mirror and see a face you don't recognize. You look again, and it's gone. A photograph shows a blurry human shape that no one saw when it was being taken. Ghosts, spirits, shadow people, poltergeists. Monster Talk is going to take a look at a lot of these phenomena over several episodes. Tonight, we start by talking about the core premise behind spirits, the idea that our personality and identity can exist beyond the death of our body. Our guest, neurologist and skeptic, Dr. Stephen Novella. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk. This episode marks our first discussion of ghosts, or spirits, or maybe just things that go bump in the night. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford, Managing Editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, Skeptic Blogger and Host of Point of Inquiry, we talk about monsters. And though they cross themselves every time they hear us say it, we're brought to you by the fine folks at Skeptic Magazine. We'll be going into depth on many topics related to ghosts in future episodes, but tonight we get started with some discussion of spirits, or ghosts. Oh, you'll hear what I'm talking about. Monster dog. Ghosts. Let's talk about ghosts for a few minutes. Let's. Um, Who's who's our guest tonight, Blake? um, Our guest tonight is going to be Dr. Steve Novella. Novella? Novella. Novellina, I think. Yeah, so I'm excited (laughs) about that. Um, I read something. And how? How is he a specialist on ghosts? No, he's not. What he is a specialist is on on brains. And um, there is this sort of idea that is out there that ghosts um, are the, I guess, continuing consciousnesses of dead people. Conscious eye, I believe. Conscious eye, is that right? <laughs> it's the It's the mind and will of a dead person manifesting itself through the spiritual realm. And, and, the question is, 
Is there anything in neuroscience which suggests that the mind or the consciousness can exist outside of the brain? Well, I guess we need to differentiate between spirits and ghosts. Sure. Let's do that. Because to my mind, a ghost is a vision or a manifestation of some kind and uh, a spirit is meant to be the soul or, or some sort of animated uh, entity that can interact, whereas I think some ghosts reputedly can, but then others just repeat a particular incident, uh, like a videotape over and over again. Right, that, the haunting kind of... Residual haunting. Right. Residual haunting, yes. Energy imprints and things like that. You know, I, I wonder that, that this probably won't make the show, but having known so many people and what they actually do with their lives, it's, it's surprising that residual hauntings aren't mostly guys masturbating over and over again. I mean, if you do the things you do in life. Now, why wouldn't this make the show? <laughs> Just getting a little too personal, Blake. I'm just saying, <laughs> like some some guy I know, it, this guy that I heard about, that a friend if, of right. mine, if, yeah. he, if he haunted his basement, <laughs> right, he'd be spanking uh, it. Uh, there'll be ghost tissue everywhere. So, <laughs> well, ectoplasm. I, I, I had a, a friend of mine had, had was talking to me about. Here we go again. I was having a discussion with her, and she was saying that that um, she's a religious friend of mine, and she was talking about how it, it didn't really. Because uh, I was trying to understand her her her, her understanding of, of God and what that meant to her. And, of course, this is one of those, you know, topics that you really shouldn't get into with religious friends. But she, she mentioned that she, it, the idea that God is watching her all the time, including when she masturbated, she said, didn't really bother her. What freaked her out was the possibility that there were ghosts that were in the room when she was, um, you know. So I thought that was an interesting distinction for her. It is. Uh- I've heard similar things from religious friends too. Uh, I'm talking about the, the idea of their grandparents watching them masturbate or, or something like that. And I guess that's just sort of born in morals and fear and socialization of religion. That that idea that the dead are watching us, uh, some people find great comfort in that, you know. And um, I find it a little weird. Uh, the from my and I, oh, I was so close to having an opportunity to ask. At Dragon Con was, I guess, two years ago, there was the skeptics versus believers debate. And one of the panelists, Ben was on the panel, and one of the other panelists was uh, someone from the Catholic uh, Atlanta Archdiocese, I think. I don't remember his name, but I, I remember he was there. And I stood in line to, to ask the question. I was going to ask him how he reconciles the idea of ghosts with the idea that when we die, we're judged and we either go to heaven or hell or purgatory or, you know, it, it seems a little weird that somehow dead people can somehow fail to find their way to heaven or hell or wherever they're supposed to go and get lost and wander around. And there's so many ghost shows and ghost people who go out and try to um, help people to the other side, which to me it seems like they're cribbing right out of uh, uh, Poltergeist the movie. But, uh, that idea that ghosts are just stuck here and just need a little bit of help getting to the other side. There's so much that I find wrong with that, that the idea that that we, as people who are not dead, have any special insight that we could provide to dead people on how to behave. Um, that, I, yeah. thought, I thought that was more the idea of spirits again, um, being earthbound and needing some sort of assistance to cross over. And I thought ghosts were, again, just you know, apparitions or 
repetitions of events. Okay, so so you're suggesting, if I understand you, that I should <laughs> stop calling them ghosts. <laughs> that, well, that those are spirits. They're, they're separate things altogether. In in uh, I guess paranormal theory. Okay. So yes. How do spirits. I dis- how do I distinguish between something I see at night? Like if I see an entity at the end of my bed, it looks like a dead relative. Spirit or ghost? Ghost. Because that's a, an apparition of some kind. Okay. If if uh, I don't see it, but I get the sense that I'm being watched by my dead relative? Um, I guess that would be a spirit, but they can interact with you. You might hear a voice or you might smell a scent, uh, maybe your grandmother's perfume or something like that, and that would be a spirit. Interesting. Well, see, to my mind, those are sort of artificial distinctions. I mean, you know, Karen's right that that uh, in the ghost literature, there's all sorts of people. I've, I've seen, I've read books where they say these are the six categories of ghosts, and they list them off as if, <laughs> as if it was any sort of uh, anything other than sort of an arbitrary uh, distinction, distinction between them. They'll talk about residual hauntings. They'll talk about this. They'll talk about that. Um, sort of neglecting to mention with the big asterisk that. There's no proof of any of this. This is all. I mean, you, you can categorize them however you want. You can you can say there's 24 hours in a day, or you can say there's 23 hours in a day. I mean, it, you know, it's 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 ultimately arbitrary. Oh yeah, as I said, this is paranormal theory, and their taxonomy is not necessarily ours. These are just uh, folklore right. exactly. beliefs. I guess what I'm wondering is is their taxonomy uh, clearly um, what's the right word <laughs> based in reality? Does, no, no, no. Does it have uh, a lexicography that's established and, and accepted across the board because... Uh, I think, by and large, there really is, and I think they're distinct um, concepts in the minds of people who believe in these things. Um, so I think that they've made these distinctions um, to be able to talk about these things in specific ways. So um, I think they are totally separate things. Then you've got poltergeists as well. Um, so lots of different categories of... Uh, ghosts, I guess overall you could call them entities. Sure. As a as a sort of overarching term. And we're still talking mostly about Western style ghosts. That's right. Yeah, we're talking about the culture with which we're familiar. Yeah, the 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 the, the ghosts of other cultures can be very different. Um, and you know, there's the whole idea of uh, the Asian, and I shouldn't even say Asian. I think maybe specifically, is it the Japanese that have ghost money and 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 yeah. Yeah. So they they try to like help their dead relatives with ghost money. They, I mean, these are all um, spiritual slash quasi religious, I guess, ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a crossover. So so when when asks as a skeptic, if I don't believe in ghosts, and let me just say that although I don't believe in ghosts, there were times in my life when I did, or spirits, and also that of all the beliefs that uh, I question as a skeptic. There's absolutely none. I would rather be true than the continued existence, existence of consciousness after death. That would just be wicked cool. That being said, since I don't believe, how do I uh, accept the lexicography and vocabulary of, of ghosts according to these people when, mm. as Ben said, I can't clearly in my mind make you know, make that distinction myself. You know, uh, the untrue thing here is different from the untrue thing there by this artificial distinction. Right. That's sort of a philosophical um, question, not an attack on them. I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering how, how do skeptics think, do we do we reconcile that? Because if we're having a conversation with people, we would hope would listen to us. We certainly seem to have an obligation to at least understand what they're talking about. And you're right there. 
I think we'd see these as definitions for beliefs rather than definitions for uh, like encyclopedic definitions. Good answer. I like that. So. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, there's there's a, po- a point in which it's very often useful to just begin with by sa- begin the conversation by saying, "When you say ghost, what do you mean?" Because I've had conversations with uh, ghost believers. You know, we're 20 minutes into a conversation, and, and it finally becomes clear to me that that they're not that they don't believe that ghosts are the spirits of the dead. They believe that ghosts are, say, telepathic projections. Uh, that they're actually phenomena that, that are created in the mind and projected outwards. Um, so, you know, and of course I wasn't, I wasn't using that definition all along. And so at some point um, I've often found it's useful just to sort of, Jay, just so we're all on the same page here. Yeah. I, and of course, you know, if you could, you could spend all night debating, you know, what is a ghost and everyone's going to have their own little, you know, variations usually. Um, but, uh, but that's, it's, it's that's one of the things that I find most interesting about um, ghost investigations is the wide variety of of not only phenomena that are claimed for ghosts, but also just uh, what what people think it is. You know, just uh, I mean, I can I can think of a half dozen uh, very different definitions. I think in the same way where I've dealt with psychics who or I've referred to them as a psychic and they've said, no, I'm an intuitive or I'm a sensitive. So these are different definitions, and I guess before we, as you say, Ben, before we um, tackle these with anyone, we need to ask their definition. What do they mean? So I guess mm. we'll start off by asking Steve that too. Hopefully we won't come across as too skeptical for him. Monster dog. Uh, tonight we have Dr. Steve Novella. He's a clinical neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine. He's the president and co-founder of the New England Skeptical Society. He's a prolific blogger whose work can be regularly found on Neurologica, Science-Based Medicine, and the SGU Rogues Gallery. And speaking of SGU, he's also the host of the popular Skeptics Guide to the Universe podcast, as well as the short-form podcast, SGU 5x5. And apparently he still has a day job, all of which suggests science has, in fact, perfected cloning. So I ask you, Dr. Novella, you're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise. Mm-hmm. You reach down and you flip the tortoise over on its back. Do you... you you seen Blade Runner? <laughs> <laughs> I have, but I... And it sounds familiar, but I forget the exact yeah, reference. It's the Convoit test. I'm just checking to make sure you're not a replicant. Yeah, all right. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> I thought this was a choose-your-own-adventure or something. Yeah, turn to page 237. <laughs> yeah, we didn't rehearse this. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> Obviously. All right. Uh, we called you on tonight to talk about ghosts. You've been running or working with the New England Skeptical Society for a long time, and I've heard you talk about New England as ghost country. How, how prevalent is ghost belief up in New England? Oh, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a ghost hunter in Connecticut. Uh, the Ed and Lorraine Warren, I think, really got the whole ghost hunting uh, genre started decades ago, 30, 40 years ago. They made a career out of it. And they held classes where they would train people to be ghost hunters. And they spun off dozens if, or score of separate groups. I mean, after a couple of months, everyone figured, hey, I could do this. You know, there's no actual skill or knowledge involved. So they just started up their own ghost hunting groups. So they're all over the place. 
Do you make a distinction between spirits and ghosts? We just had a big discussion about the, the vocabulary of ghost hunting, the vocabulary of ghost belief. Yeah, they, they make up a lot of terms to make themselves sound like they know what they're talking about. So you could make distinction between spirits and ghosts and entities and poltergeists and demons and whatever. Uh, but it's all just made up stuff. I mean, it's sometimes inspired by mythology or folklore, but it, but it's often just, you know, artificially manufactured categories. Since none of them really exist, it's, it's hard to have any, any sort of legitimate categorization. That, that sounds very skeptical. Yeah, it's <laughs> very much like a debate about you know how many how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I mean, you know, it's kind of pointless when the premise is flawed, right? When Baptists clearly show us angels don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trick question. So, Steve, how do you feel about the surge of paranormal television shows that have appeared in the last few years? Well, you know, I think that these things are going to come and go. I don't, I don't know that it's. Uh, any sort of disturbing trend. I think it's just riding on the uh, the coattails of reality TV. I think uh, you know ghost hunting reality TV is you know kind of a match made in heaven, if you will. Um, so that, that that's what I think is responsible for the phenomenon. In a way, you know, it could be a good thing in that you know how long can you watch a show about ghost hunting where nothing happens? You know, they're never going to find a ghost. And so far, in all these you know, ghost hunting reality shows, no one's found anything. All they do is go around scaring each other. Uh, I wonder if that's going to have backfire a little bit. If eventually people will get bored of that sort of thing, you know? Well, I think they're perpetrating hoaxes instead to actually have something to show on TV. Otherwise, as you say, it's quite bland viewing. Well, of course. I mean, you know. That being said, Ghost Hunters is in season six now, so you know, someone's watching that thing for six years. Well, it's cheap to make those kind of shows. I mean, it's really, you have a lot of cable channels. It's a really cheap way to fill airtime. I think there's probably a revolving, you know, audience. People go to it and to check it out. Um, there, I'm sure there's also a dedicated audience that for some reason I cannot fathom wants to watch that week after week. But, uh, it, I don't think, I mean, think about it this way. We could now say after years and years of all of these ghost shows, what have they found? Nothing. I mean, this is kind of a, it's a sloppy experiment, but it's an ongoing experiment with negative results. Except that, that I don't think most of them make that um, uh, presentation. They imply they found something. They, their of course whole, they do. Their yeah. whole premise is uh, built on sort of, a, a, I guess, the ghost of the gaps, right? Something mysterious happened. They have it recorded. They can't explain it. So, you know. Yeah, that, that's all a massive exercise in anomaly hunting. That's what they do. That's all that they do. They look for things that that are superficially anomalous. They can't immediately explain it. And then they declare whatever anomalies they encounter to be ghosts. Uh, that's it. That's all they got. They don't have any, you know, basic science to predict what they should be finding. They don't have any predictions that they can test scientifically. You know, they don't explore alternative hypotheses. It's just what was that cold spot or that flicker or that noise or that anomaly, whatever, it's a ghost. That's it. It's interesting you, you bring that up because um, I just a couple of days ago I was, I was reading uh, the, uh, one of the Ghost Hunters books. Uh, I, think it's called, I think it's just called Ghost Hunting. And um, it has a chapter, and I use the word chapter very loosely, on um, the science uh, behind ghost hunting. 
And the book itself is 200, I think, 63 pages. Which is long for a pop-up book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I noticed that the, the section on the science of ghost hunting is four paragraphs. What do they say? Uh, they say that, well, he, uh, it's probably my Jason Haas, and he just basically says, he gives a sort of a thumbnail sketch of, you know, science is about testing. <laughs> and... <laughs> Okay, and then four paragraphs later, it's on to, you know, case number 42 in, in, uh, in 1997. So, uh, it, it was just sort of remarkable to me that for a, for a ghost hunting television show and group that makes such a big production out of how scientific they are, um, there's virtually no discussion of that in, in, in their book. So that, that meets up exactly with what you were saying. Yeah, that's all they could scrape together was a few paragraphs. I mean, they, they clearly don't understand the process of science. I mean, it really is, you know, pseudoscience. It's it's absolutely classic for pseudoscience. They're sort of going through the motions, but they don't understand the nature of hypothesis testing at all. Uh, they don't really even understand the nature of the equipment that they're using, how to use mm. it properly, what the results mean, what it means to have a test for something. I mean, they basically make every amateurish mistake there is to make in science. I, I have to wonder if if... The beliefs of, of what's not a religion, I guess, in, in sort of ghost hunting, could someday turn into a religion in that, uh, obviously, certain religions already have veneration of the dead. Um, but the the way they're using the equipment now, I mean, could you see a time, I know you can't see the future, but could you see a time when they're using EMF detectors the same way that Scientology uses e-readers and it becomes something more codified? I don't know how codified it'll become. I, I think that there's already a significant overlap. I certainly have encounters with uh, many ghost hunters, you know, lo investigating local groups in Connecticut, and they're very faith-based. I mean, they, they say flat out um, at times that, you know, you have to have faith uh, in order to, to do what they do. There, there was one group that refused to have us along on an investigation because they thought that our, our negative skeptical vibes would put us in danger. Not that it would ruin the results, but we would be at risk because we didn't have faith to protect us from whatever demons we would be encountering. Uh, they also tend to get involved with uh, exorcism and, and demonic possession and those types of things, which are which are overtly religious, even working with uh, – not Catholic, but uh, with with priests or ministers, you know, who who do exorcisms. So it's already a religion, you know. Really, it really isn't um, scientific, as we said. Uh, where it will evolve again, I don't think I don't think anyone could say at this point. You actually raised one of the questions I was going to ask, which is how common is that tie of a religion to the searches? Because uh, Paranormal State, which is one of the shows that I loathe yet keep a track of is uh, <laughs> they 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 frequently uh find that well it's not a ghost it's a demon uh mm -hmm. which, and and i'm not sure how you can make that distinction between one i don't know what it is and another i don't know what it is um but they come in and at least on their show i guess they think they're doing something nice because they're cleansing or they're doing a ritual or they're doing something quasi religious quasi magical to try to drive away the the entity, whatever it is, um, and I think they think they're helping people, um, but I'm not so sure that they are. Uh, mm -hmm. What what are your thoughts on that? I think they do a lot of harm, actually. Uh, if 
someone really believes that their house is haunted to the point where it's disrupting their life and they're going to call in the ghost hunters, right, to help them out. This is not a casual believer. This is not somebody who's just curious or who finds the whole thing entertaining. It's probably part of their belief system. And they're very ripe for exploitation, whether innocent or deliberate. One possible harm is that you may be playing into an actual delusion. And I, I have investigated cases where I thought that the, um, the the clients or victims, whoever you want to perceive them, were were frankly delusional. I mean, like they needed psychiatric attention. Uh, the worst thing you could do in a situation like that is say, you know what, your delusions are actually real. That's like the absolute worst thing you could you could possibly do. Uh, and that's, but that's exactly what they did. Uh, they then would do the cleansing or the exorcism or whatever. There's always a temporary response. You know, you, you play into someone's delusions. They're going to respond according to the script. And the script is when you have the exorcism, the spirit gets driven away, but it always comes back. You know, so you actually didn't do anything, accomplish anything except reinforce the belief or reinforce the delusion and make the problem even worse. You didn't address the underlying problem, which was a rather fixed belief in something superstitious or magical that's that's not real, but yet is is disruptive. I think uh, from personal experience that that's I, I like having a real answer uh, rather than a um, a temporary patch, if you will. And I know Ben's done a case where he investigated and and provided a resolution that was based in reality for the people who were experiencing the the haunting. Um, but what and, if they don't want to listen to that? Well, that was what I was going to say. Is that what if? Uh, well, it's 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 kind of tricky. It seems tricky to me to balance helping them out of a situation. If assuming they're not delusional, but they're experiencing something odd, to help them out of that without coming in and saying, okay. I know there's no ghost because there's no such thing as ghosts, you know, mm -hmm. for, for people who think, you know, for people who find comfort in the idea of continued human consciousness. Um, yeah, I mean, you can approach that like uh, as a professional would. I mean, I'm a physician, you know, we don't confront people's belief systems. It's not my job as someone's doctor to confront their faith or their belief system at all. Uh, but I do just address um, the factual claims that, that are within the scope of my profession. So you could certainly say, you know, would not confront their belief in an afterlife or in, even in ghosts or spirits just to, to address the very specific phenomena that you see before you and tell them, well, this time it was a loose shutter or whatever was making the noise. Uh, and that's it. And who knows what effect, what ripple effect that might happen. You can never predict. You really can't, you know, force feed people. Uh, things like this, but it, you know, it may plant the seed of doubt and they may think, Oh, next time maybe there's a mundane explanation too. Maybe not everything, you know, is, uh, is supernatural. And if, again, if they are highly invested in that belief system, there's nothing you can do about it anyway, but at least you could address their temporary problem. My concern is that if they don't receive that confirmation bias, then they'll just go to another group and uh, uh, get them to come through and, and give them yeah. a, a re an, an explanation that they're wanting to hear and uh, to, to give them some sort of resolution. That, that's true. They may, in fact, do that. You know, the, and, and, I mean, so you, at least you haven't done any harm. Uh, yeah. you, you've, you've done your role appropriately and, and didn't contribute to the situation. If they decide to completely ignore you and then go to the next you know, ghost hunter who's going to give them the answer they want to hear, that, that's out of your control, right? 
Well, Steve, uh, following up exactly on that, uh, speaking of, uh, of ghost uh, ghost believers who have done some serious harm, you've worked with uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, can you give us some some background on them? Yeah, that's a very long and interesting story. They they were an, uh, a very interesting couple. Um, you know, Ed, Ed Warren passed away a few years ago. Lorraine is still around. And she, this was a, sort of the classic um, combination where Lorraine uh, was a, a self proclaimed clairvoyant or psychic so she would walk into a house and then her quote-unquote scientific instrument was just to take a psychic impression she would feel whether or not there was a spirit there and whether it was a demon or a ghost or whatever uh and ed you know portrayed himself as the more of the scientific investigator i i found it very very amusing to watch the um the dramatizations of, of them and their work on TV or in the movies, because when you know them personally, they're nothing like that image, you know, that gets that sort of fake Hollywood image that, get, that gets made of them. Ed was a very simple guy, you know, very unsophisticated. And this was his livelihood. This was the thing that got him up in the morning. Uh, he clearly liked being at the center and having these interesting stories to tell. And he, you know, to his credit, he parlayed it into a career. Uh, but the guy, but he didn't, you know, he, he wouldn't know a scientific experiment if he tripped over it. He really knew absolutely nothing about science. He, he wanted validation though. He really wanted our validation of what he was doing. He saw, you know, we were at the time, we were just, just a, you know, a self-formed local skeptical group, but he desperately wanted us to validate his evidence and was very unhappy when, when we, you know, reported on it unfavorably. Um, at the same time, you know, we talked to a lot of people, but we encountered uh, a, a lot of people who thought that, you know, Ed and Lorraine didn't treat them well, that they um, committed hoaxes or frauds, uh, whether to, you know, get a lot of money out of an old woman who wanted to talk to her dead husband or just the quote unquote pious fraud where, you know, when they take their students to a to a house and make sure that there's some anomaly that they run into, you know, um, and you know, but it was it was a very fun experience for us, and we came away from it with a, with a lot of nuggets, you know, about how to approach these things and how and how ghost hunting groups operate in their belief systems. Um, very very antithetical to science. I mean, it was really interesting. They were very hostile to science, but at the same time wanted the validation of science. But of course, just we're not going to get it. And Lorraine is still active, isn't she? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, she's still giving lectures. Um, I don't. I don't know how much of their old activities in terms of like classes and investigations that she's doing. Uh, but you know, again, they have a lot of. Um, they always were surrounded with the current group of of people that they were sort of training in the craft of ghost hunting. It was, a, it was like a revolving door. It was always a different group whenever you went by, but uh, they always had a few, a few people surrounded them. Yeah, I had a, I did, I did last year, I did an investigation for the show Mystery Quest in uh, outside of Los Angeles, and, and the, the team that they pulled together was, uh, included a, a demonologist, um, and when I saw that on the call sheet, <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, this will be interesting. Well, it turns out that he's... Um, he is uh, um, Ed's nephew, mm-hmm. and he was quite proud of the fact. He, he he couldn't tell me enough times how he had trained at the knee of Ed Warren, and I yes. it was all I could do to bite my tongue. And well, that's good. We'll we'll see we'll see what ghost you find. 
Right. Yeah, we we had a laugh at that too because you know Ed would always present himself as a as a demonologist as if that means something. You know, just it was sort of a self-titled thing. Uh and he had his sort of prepackaged set of folklore that was his replacement for actual knowledge. Uh but again, very classic pseudoscience, you know, just all the superficial trappings but but none of the substance. So we brought you on because you are a neurologist, and I mm-hmm. thought you might be well qualified to discuss one of the principal philosophical and scientific questions behind the whole idea of, uh, I'm going to have to say spirits because um, Karen keeps correcting me when I say ghosts, <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that, um, um, that human consciousness can survive without the brain, outside of the brain, after the brain, mm-hmm. uh, the, I, I guess dualism, if you will. Yeah, I mean, philosophers call that dualism as a sort of a broad category. There's many different types of dualism, but they all involve something other than the physical property, the physical action of the brain being completely and totally responsible for what we experience as consciousness or, or mental function. There's something else you know, what, that could be completely non-physical like a spirit. It, it could be something else that's physical but not understood. That's that's just beyond a reductionist approach to brain function. Um, so there, there's the the uh, the whole spectrum, or just something mysterious that we have no idea what it is, but but something decidedly non-physical and not the brain. Um, you know, I think that the position of of most neuroscientists is that you know we've come a quite a long way in figuring out how the brain, in fact, does cause consciousness. Um, we certainly know that it does, that it causes consciousness. And we have a lot of information about the kind of processes that produce consciousness. We don't know everything, of course, and there are still certain aspects of uh, brain function that relate to consciousness as opposed to you know, not all brain function contributes to consciousness. Some brain processes are subconscious. And exactly what the difference is, you know, why is your cortex conscious and your cerebellum is not conscious? We really can't say that. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. 
Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, that's something that you know has yet to be discovered. But not knowing exactly how the brain generates consciousness doesn't mean that we can't be relatively certain that it in fact does. Uh, every way you choose to ask the question, you know, if the brain is 100% responsible for consciousness, what would we predict from that hypothesis? Well, we would predict that if you turn off the brain, you turn off consciousness. If you, if you damage the brain, you damage the conscious. If you pharmacologically alter the brain, you, you alter consciousness. And that's exactly what we see, that there's this very close correlation between brain function and consciousness uh, there's also no evidence. Now, of course, people who believe in the paranormal will dispute this, but I maintain and many others maintain that when you, when you look at it, there's really no evidence for any mental phenomenon outside of brain function. Um, so until there is, dualism, I think, is, is dead in the water. And the, and the only thing that, that the philosophers that are still putting it forward, like David Chalmers and others, have to turn to, in my opinion, is this sort of God of the gaps argument that we don't fully understand how the brain causes conscious, therefore there must be something else. But I think that's a logical fallacy. There doesn't have to be something else. There's just a gap in our current understanding. That, that's completely consistent with what I've heard. Uh, in the, in, I think you summed up the, um, let's call it the believer side in a nutshell. If, if science can't explain it, then there's still room for it to be something supernatural. Right. Uh, have you heard of this sort of position that that the that consciousness exists outside the brain and the brain is just like an anchor point? So I, I, I'm not really sure what that's all about. But uh, yeah, the brain is antenna. There uh, you that, go. Brain is yeah, antenna. Yeah, that's that is a that's a special pleading argument that's designed to explain why brain function correlates with cognitive function so much. It's like, well, that part of the brain isn't causing that phenomenon; it's just receiving it. So, of course, if you alter it then you're going to be losing that part of the signal. And then therefore, um, that, that's why changing the brain will change consciousness. Uh, that doesn't really hold water. First of all, it's an unnecessary hypothesis. I, I likened it to saying that there's an invisible fairy sitting in my light switch. And whenever I flip the switch, he makes the connection to turn on the light bulb. It's a, it's a completely unnecessary, unfalsifiable step that you don't have to interject. Um, you know, you can, you know, Occam's razor comes in at some point. And say, well, if I could explain everything I see with just saying that the light switch opens and closes the circuit, I don't need the invisible fairy there to, to do it. And the, the brain as, an, as antenna is the same way. It's, it's a special pleading argument in order to explain why the brain correlates with consciousness. But the simpler explanation is that the brain correlates with consciousness because it's causing it. It's not just correlating with it. But I also think the other uh, argument that I, that shoots down the brain as antenna a du form of dualism is that the, you know, the, the, where they are different is where the arrow of causation goes. The brain as an antenna, the arrow of causation goes from the mind to the brain. And with uh, the, the neuroscience position, 
the arrow of causation goes from the brain to the mind. And, and we can test that because if you, if you alter the brain, we're not talking about destroying it or turning it off, but if we just alter the function of the brain, that changes the content of consciousness. It doesn't just remove parts of consciousness. It can actually alter it. And, you know, so if you liken, if you make the analogy between a TV and the program that the TV is showing, there's nothing I can do to a television to change the story of a television show that I'm watching, right? I can change the channels. I can change the reception. I can you know, drop out one of the colors. I could do things like that. But I can't make a drama into a comedy. That's at the other end. Yet beer so, can, right? Right, but exactly. <laughs> but you you can the analog you can do the analogous thing to consciousness. You can use you know pharmacology, for example, to change the nature of consciousness itself, the way it functions and is put together. You know, to alter consciousness in a way that's just not analogous to receiving some kind of signal from the outside. So it's both unnecessary and doesn't really fit. The, the full breadth of evidence that we have. Cool. And Steve, there's a, a simple analogy out there that the mind is software and the brain is hardware. What do you think of that metaphor? I, you know, it's not a bad metaphor as long as you're not using it to make a dualist argument. Um, the, but, it, you know, it does break down in that um, the mind really is hardware. I mean, it is what the brain does. Uh, but, you know, we um, may use that as a somewhat sloppy shorthand when we're thinking about contributions to neurological function from the hardwiring of your brain and the biochemistry of the brain versus your experiences, knowledge, and belief, you know, the kind of things that, um, that the brain will have experienced over time. Uh, so that's really, I think, what, what when neuroscientists use the hardware-software analogy, they're making that distinction. Um, but it, you know, I, I wouldn't extend it to the software being something other than stuff that's happening in the neurons themselves, in the brain itself. Have you um, have you read that book on intelligence by Jeff Hawkins? I, I have not. No, uh, he's the creator of the Palm Pilot and Handspring, and, and I guess he stopped doing hardware development and software development to go uh, learn to be uh, something of a neuroscientist. He went back to college, and then wanted to sort of develop an, an, a theory of artif- basically wanted to develop a theory of intelligence because he didn't feel that you could have a good theory of artificial intelligence until you could really explain what intelligence is. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a really interesting book, and I'm dying to hear someone who actually has a neuroscience background's opinion on the book because, frankly, I'm not educated enough in that area to figure out if he's right or not. But it's a very interesting book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds interesting. I'll, I'll add it to my growing stack of books that I yeah, really yeah, should yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's an audio book. You know, it, it, you could skip. You know, the good thing about you and the audio book, you don't need the pictures like I do. So, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But uh, I mean, I certainly have read a lot about that notion of uh, the relationship between, uh, and I've written about this as well on Neurologica. It's a very interesting topic. The notion that as we try to develop artificial intelligence that that program, that research program, is occurring in parallel to the, the uh, program to basically understand how the brain works, to reverse engineer the brain, and that those two 
um, research programs which are occurring in parallel side by side are increasingly feeding off of each other. You know, we can learn about the brain by trying to build a digital model of it. And then that also teaches us about how we might go about creating artificial intelligence. And I do think that we probably, the, when we do achieve something that could be reasonably, I mean, obviously we have forms of AI, but when we have human level AI, uh, the kind of thing that we would really think of as being conscious and aware. I think that the shortest path to that is going to be duplicating the hardware of the human brain or a primate brain or something, you know, some kind of, of uh, vertebrate brain. Uh, be, so we, we will probably create artificial intelligence before we fully understand how it functions. But then that will be a tremendous research model. And talk about a model now. You know, we, we're getting really good at manipulating the biological brain in order to study how it works. Imagine if we had a fully rendered digital model of the human brain and could do anything we wanted to it. That, w that would be such a boon to neuroscience. So these are very natural um, uh, research programs that will, that will definitely feed off of each other, and they are, and I think they will increasingly do so over time. Steve, as, along the same lines, um, as, as you know, one of the claims of, of some ghost hunters is that electromagnetic fields or EMS can cause hallucinations uh, and uh, maybe possibly creating ghost experiences. And I've, 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 I think there was some research by I think Persinger or someone Persinger or someone else. But do you do you know of any good evidence for this, or is this sort of uh, more pseudoscience? Well, I wouldn't call it pseudoscience. I think it's speculative at this point. It's not unreasonable. We can, in fact, use electromagnetic waves to either increase or decrease the functioning of different parts of the brain. And if you do that to uh, parts of the frontotemporal lobe, for example, you might, in fact, induce out-of-body experiences. Uh, so that much is not implausible. But you know, it has to be focused and in a certain frequency uh, in order to have this effect. Um, it seems un unlikely that environmental electromagnetic fields would be fine-tuned just enough to cause this effect. So I can't say that it's impossible. It's an interesting idea. I just don't think it's terribly plausible. And at, at present, while we can certainly duplicate it in a lab, I don't, I'm not aware of any evidence to suggest that it actually happens out there in the world. Right, because right, there's obviously a big big distinction between, uh, between uh, instigating hallucinations or odd feelings, you, you know, as you said, in very specified intentional effect, and, for example, saying that somebody who sits in front of a computer is being exposed to EMFs, and that might cause them, because, as you said, environmental ones are, are they're everywhere. So they're, they're everywhere. They're not nearly as powerful as the ones that we're using in the lab uh, there. And again, it has to be really focused and a specific frequency. So it's just not really plausible that you're going to get it sitting in front of a computer screen. But it does seem to explain that you can create these uh, effects from within the brain without having to have a ghost. Oh, yeah. I mean, that much has been clearly established. And we can produce these effects uh, with, you know, pharmacological uh, agents, you know, hallucinogens, that's basically what they do. Uh, sleep deprivation, oxygen deprivation uh, can produce these effects. 
Um, so, you know, it could certainly happen in the course of a cardiac arrest, for example, and is plausibly, you know, responsible for out-of-body experiences and, and so-called near-death experiences. These happen some, you know, sometimes in people spontaneously, but they can certainly be provoked. And they, as I said, now we could do it pretty reliably in the lab with electromagnetic fields. You know, basically, you know, transcranial magnetic stimulation is the, te- is the specific technique. So, um, you know, there are parts of the brain that, that subserve these functions. We know there's a part of your brain that makes you feel as if you're inside your body, that makes you feel as if you're a distinct separate entity from the rest of the universe. Uh, and if these, if we disrupt these parts of the body, uh, of the brain, you could feel as if you're floating above your body or that you're looking at yourself from behind your body or that you are one with the universe, uh, or you may interpret that in different ways. You know, sometimes people interpret that in line with their metaphysics and their belief system. They may feel they're one with God or one with nature or whatever. Um, and these are people have these experiences sometimes when they have seizures. Other people will have them when they use hallucinogens. So it's absolutely a brain phenomenon that you know ha- is well described, and we're actually have a pretty good working model now of the actual neuroanatomy that subserves it. So it's really not that much mysterious about it anymore. And so further to near-death experiences, uh, do you think that neuroscience can explain ghost sightings? Um, well, yeah, I think that um, you know, there's, a, there's a host of neurological phenomena that can contribute to people believing they have seen ghosts. Uh, there are you know, visual illusions, visual hallucinations. There are these you know, other more profound neurological phenomena like out-of-body experiences, etc. So um, there's also, you know, with uh, uh, there are a host of sleep phenomena such as hypnagogia or hypnopompic hallucinations, uh, which I've actually had myself. I could tell you that could be very profound experiences that usually involve the perception of an entity in the room with you. So, you know, we know from, you know, neurological disorders and also, you know, 15% of the, you know, the, the quote-unquote normal population without a specific sleep disorder can have these types of uh, sleep-associated hallucinations where they perceive that they're paralyzed, that they, there may be an entity sitting on top of their chest or there's a malevolent entity in the room with them. So if the brain can produce that experience completely internally and we know it can occur with certain disease states like narcolepsy, and we can actually stop them from happening with medication. You know, that's a lot of evidence to say this is an br- internal brain phenomenon. So when, it, when a similar experience happens, you know, we, we have a very plausible explanation at hand that this is just a neurological phenomenon. Can you tell us about your experience? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, what this um, happens when I am sleep-deprived, which... I spent, you know, four or five years of my life being sleep deprived during my medical training. When I was an intern and a resident, I would, you know, have to work for for 40 or so hours at a time. And um, what would happen when I went, when I finally did get to sleep after being awake for more than 24 hours or so, I would almost invariably have a, a hypnagogic hallucination where I would, um, sort of drift in and out of being sort of pseudo-awake and pseudo... It really is a merger of being awake and being asleep. It was hard for me to tell if I was awake or asleep. I would often, like over and over, try to get out of bed and just dream that I got out of bed, but I thought I was awake when I actually wasn't. And I would, you know, when I did um, 
try to wake myself, I would be paralyzed. I, at times I had um, kind of like a night terror experience where I felt that there was a, a, a malevolent entity in the room with me. And, of course, you know, just imagine believing that just out of the corner of your eye there is something malevolent, but you are paralyzed and you can't turn to look at it or even make a sound to, to maybe alert somebody else that there's a problem. It's, it's a very terrifying experience. Uh, but you know, it hasn't happened to me actually in a long time. It only happens when I'm very sleep deprived. Given your work schedule, I'm surprised that's not all the time. Well, even though I, I have a pretty hectic work schedule, I don't have to take call anymore. I don't have to stay up for 36 hours straight anymore. So you'd probably see more ghosts if you did. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, speaking of which, now you mentioned a couple of the ghost investigations. Uh, about how many have you done, and what sort of uh, what sort of cases were they? I think we did a dozen cases or so um, in all around the Connecticut area. Uh, often we were called in by acquaintances um, or like a friend of a friend kind of thing who knew that we did this mm-hmm. to uh, investigate a home um, that that somebody believed was haunted. So we spent a few nights in, in houses. Uh, nothing ever happened. What, one funny thing that happened was one of the, one of the people claimed that, that – uh, who thought that the house may be haunted, that the lights would go on and off by themselves. And we discovered that, um, that the lights were on a timer switch. So they <laughs> – <laughs> awesome. that, that Way to go, was, Sherlock. That was that was an easy one, and uh, there was a couple of radio shows that you know hooked us up with the with the some local ghost hunting group, and then had us all go into a, a haunted house, and you know like a skeptic and a believer. Of course, nothing happened whenever the skeptics were there, but whenever we were out of the room, the ghost hunters <laughs> would see stuff. But it was all just you know their subjective reports of things. Um, and I, and I re- into, reviewed um, a number of um, of exorcisms. There, was, there were a couple of groups very active in Connecticut uh, doing exorcisms, and I looked at hours and hours of videotape, and also got directly involved in a few cases. Do you, uh, it seems like a lot of skeptics have become um, uh, skeptical activists because of sort of the Web 2.0 and Facebook and all the social networking tools out there. And I've heard so many of them talk about they want to go on a ghost hunt and. You know, they've learned a few things uh, from reading or, 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 you know, listening to podcasts, and they want to go out there and do something, you know? Yeah, uh, do it. I was going to say, do you have any advice? Yeah, just do it. Just do you it. know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and uh, there's things that you – I mean, I'm not against armchair skepticism. I know, like, Joe Nickel and other guys who make their – who you know, basically have full-time or investigating stuff like this. That's great. But I, I, I'm not critical of armchair skepticism. I do a lot of it. I think there's an absolute role for it. It's that all scientists do this. You know, whenever one scientist reads a paper uh, describing the research of another scientist and critiques it, he's doing armchair skepticism. That's part of the scientific process. But you do learn a lot when you actually go to, into the field and see what people are actually doing because you'll be amazed it's a lot dumber than you think it is. It, 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 uh, my, my friends and I were perpetually amazed at how much more stupid the whole process was than we ever imagined. We gave it far more credit than it really deserved. When we, you know, we did, we did it, um, went to one alleged haunted place where uh, a group that we were working with was doing uh, EVPs, you know, electronic voice phenomena. And, you know, 
they they were interpreting the traffic out in the street or um, at one point in time, you know, some like I think a mobile, something dangling from the ceiling started to move on its own. But it, the fan came on, you know, and there are things that you pick up on when you're in the room that you wouldn't necessarily think of if you're just taking a secondhand report and trying to figure it out from your den. Uh, so you, you essentially lose a lot of respect for the, for the gullible ghost hunters or EVP hunters or whatever when you actually see them in action because it's hard for you to imagine how childishly silly it all is until you see it firsthand. And did you actually correct them and engage in outreach Oh yeah, we were doing that. Yeah, we would burn our way through them very quickly because as soon as we started giving them an honest assessment of the evidence that they were so impressed with, they, they lost interest in us very, very quickly. But we would get a few good investigations out of them, you know, and then they would basically once they realized that we were not going to be impressed with their evidence, they they decided we weren't worth it anymore. But we got what we wanted, right? We got a good story out of it. It's always so important, I think, for people to look at what the actual claims are. Uh, rather than it, I see it again and again and again, people trying to find out who's died at a place or, you know, mm. how can we explain this? Well, let's start with who is the ghost, not is there a ghost, mm -hmm. then, you know, and it's just so odd. Uh, right, right, right. So, uh, yeah. And then of course they, they start to like tell stories about the ghost in life as if that's supposed to be impressive. And then they find out when you investigate it, that the details match the stories they were spinning. So of course they're doing a little bit of retrofitting, but also you know, if you could have just investigated it ahead of time and figured out those details, right? I mean, these are things that obviously you were able to dig up with a little bit of investigation. Who's to say that you didn't know that information before you got in front of the cameras and started saying these details about the ghost. So it's not really evidence because it's not a controlled situation. Um, a bit of hot reading. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they could, it's easy to do cold reading, but they sometimes can do hot reading as well. You know, they, they can cheat. Um, it, it, I guess it, it's good reality television, but it's not science. <laughs> have you, um, or as a neurologist, this may have come up. <laughs> what, there's this sort of thing that I've noticed, maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, that at nighttime, I'm more susceptible to supernatural type thoughts than during the day. The heebie-jeebies? Like, yeah, that kind of thing. What, what is, what's causing that? I mean, it's not just that it's dark outside, right? Or is it? No, I think it is. I think it is the dark. Uh, I get the heebie-jeebies. You know, it, it's, it's, it's subconscious. It's, you know, an instinct. It's, uh, it's, I certainly can also tell myself I, there's nothing to actually be afraid of, but the emotion is raw and it's just there. You know, if you're alone in a scary environment in the dark, you suddenly you start to look over your shoulder. You're aware of things. That's a survival. It's you know it's easy to to envision this as a survival instinct, and we know from primate research that fear of the dark seems to be instinctual in most primates. So it's not a stretch to, to think that it would be in humans as well. It makes absolutely sense. I mean, you know, we evolved in an environment where there really were monsters in the dark behind you know the grass, and being instinctively afraid of that was was probably a huge survival advantage. You, it's, it's a bit hard to, uh, to tow the MRI out to the graveyard and sort of see what's going on in the mind right there. Uh, have you seen any studies on looking at that sort of fear state, uh, the irrational fear state? I mean, there, there have been um, fMRI and other types of studies looking at 
uh, like showing people images that are meant to evoke either disgust or fear or violence. And you can use that in order to see like which parts of the brain light up. I, I haven't, and this is probably because it doesn't exist for practical reasons, seen anything in the field, as you say, like in a graveyard. Um, yeah, maybe when this stuff gets more portable, we can, we can do those kind of studies. But yeah, they, they, they're actually, there absolutely have been fMRI studies looking at the, um, which parts of the brain light up basically in reaction to emotional stimuli, including fearful or violent stimuli. Do you have any uh, upcoming projects or anything you guys are working on that will be, uh, be uh, surfacing in the coming uh, weeks and months? Yeah, we, we're, we're pretty busy with our core work. As you know, the podcast, uh, The Skeptics Guide, you guys know now that doing a, producing a podcast on a regular basis is quite a commitment. And, you know, yeah, yeah so- but, but that, it's not as much as if it were a good one. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you're if, weekly. We, if we did a quality show, then it would be much harder work. We do ours weekly, but it's W-E-A-K-L-Y. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, well, yeah, we have, you know. I contribute to four blogs. You know, you mentioned them. Plus, Skeptic Blog is the one you didn't list, actually. And then we were producing some YouTube videos. Uh, we do have a YouTube channel. Uh, we, we had hoped to produce a lot more, but producing video is ten times the work as audio. So, that th- those are coming uh, more slowly than we thought. And you know, we're working on some other um, web-based projects. We're we're going to be you know, increasing our web presence significantly. Uh, in the near future. With the New York City Skeptics, we are sponsoring a, uh, the Northeast Conference on Science or Skepticism in New York on April 17th. Um, great lineup of speakers. DJ Grothy, James Randi will be there, um, and many others, including the live recording of the SGU. So that we're excited about that. That's going to be a one-day conference, but we're going to build that into a full weekend conference in 2011, also in the spring. Um, so this is just sort of a, we're, we're a building year for that conference. And the usual stuff, I mean, the skeptical movement is growing tremendously. So now um, we have the amazing meeting in July, Dragon Con in the end of September. Woo-hoo. That's my thing. Or end of August, <laughs> yeah, beginning of September. Now we have TAM Australia in November, so the end of November. Um, there's going to be a huge Australian skeptical conference that uh, the JREF is um, sponsoring. So it'll be officially a TAM Australia, and the full SGU cast is going there as well. So it's going to be a busy year. Uh, and we, I really need to make this part of my regular uh, panel of questions. Is What's your favorite monster? Um, yeah, that is a good question. Oh, he doesn't uh, have one. Oh, he's going to have to pull out the monster mail and roll D20. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Just say I'm Bigfoot. A, Don't say a, Bigfoot. Uh, Bigfoot's boring. I mean, I, I certainly like uh, very menacing, sophisticated robots, but also um, – you know, interesting organisms. So, like the alien, I thought was wonderful. That was that. That's a you know a great monster, if you will, because it's just vicious and relentless, uh, and just cool. But are you a fan of the uh, Aliens versus Predator? I saw I saw one of the, those movies. It was all right. I think the comics yeah. were better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, do you still do any uh, tabletop gaming? I do. Uh, you know, when uh, when my wife and I first had kids. Uh, it became obvious that we couldn't do a lot of what we did previously for entertainment. We couldn't just go pop out to the movies anymore because we'd have to get a babysitter if we were going to do that. So uh, my friends and I realized that we were going to have to replace it with some in-home entertainment. And and we started um, – we had all tabletopped in our youth. So you know, my geeky friends and I started tabletopping, and we've actually been doing it 
you know, on a somewhat regular basis, every three, four weeks or so, we get together. So it's kind of like our movie night now. We get together and we tabletop, um, take turns GMing. It's a lot. Of, it's fun. You know, you get into a group of people. It's just a, another excuse just to hang out. With you friends. don't have to defend it to me. I'm a hardcore, right? So yeah, <laughs> but just I have to me. Same, you have kids, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. We're talking about role playing, Karen, and not the kind you're used to. But <laughs> oh, <come> now. <laughs> exactly. That's what she said. Thanks. Oh. <laughs> It's true. What, 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 if you, this is totally off topic. What, what system do you play? Uh, we we um, are using the D20 system. Uh, the, the reason for that is that some friends and I actually published seven books in the D20 system. So you get extra geek points for that if you've actually published a, a D20 role-playing supplement. So I like to actually test out my own systems by playing them. Cool. Was it Europe or Steve Jackson or, or who was it for TSR? Yeah, no, D20, man. Wizards of the Coast, And we stuck with 3.5. We didn't go to the 4.0. Yeah, I felt like they, 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 they violated me. I'm not going to say They right. made it into a computer game. Yes, you know, they but, did. They totally did. It, they, yeah. they made it so that every every fight is it's like you're repowered. It's just foolish, you know. I, yeah, I mean, there may have been some good ideas in there, but I think just overall, we, we prefer the three, 3.5 system, and that's what our books were written in, so, so, so we're sticking. So philosophically, I never felt like there was more hope for gaming than when they had the open G, you know, open gaming license. It was, it was a great idea. We got suckered into it. That's what we did. Yeah, it was, just, it was right. brilliant, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you're still having fun uh, doing something like that. That's great. It is uh, a lot of fun. It's hope for me. As soon as my kids get a little older, I'm hoping I can get them around the table. We'll see. Yeah, my my, my older daughter's ten, and she's definitely interested. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to actually. I don't know if she has any friends who would be interested. That's the that's another story. But it'd be I, I think it would be a lot of fun to run a game for my own kids. Because, you know, um, it's, again, a family thing that we could do. And um, just, you know, they would be totally fresh eyes. I mean, they'd never have played it before. So I could reuse every cliche that ever existed, <laughs> and it would be totally new to them. And it could be a lot of fun. That would be cool. And I heard that you can also uh, give EPs uh, for uh, out-of-game chores, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, no, I'm, a, I'm a purist. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the the little showcase at the end of uh, Wheel of Fortune. You can buy one piece of equipment for free if you do all your chores. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Anyway, that, do you mind if I include the gaming stuff, or you want to keep that? Go out? right ahead. I'm already out of the closet on that. Go okay, right ahead. Okay. Do, you, uh, <laughs> do you still have any of those things for sale, like on a, uh, Open RPG or, or the RPG Net or any of those websites? Or? We sold off all of our stock of hard copies. Um, you still sell PDFs? You know, we, so uh, we were not. We, you know, we probably should, but we're we're not selling PDFs. Um, the uh, the 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 two that I mostly wrote myself. One is. Um, a ritual system, uh, Spellbound, which is, I, I really like. It's a very good addition to uh, the Sword and Sorcery Fantasy D20, you know, because it's a, a higher level magic that's very interesting. And um, Agents of Faith, which really expands the religious system of the game so that you know, every character, even if you're not a cleric, could have their um, religious devotion be really part and parcel of their powers and make it a much more cohesive part of the plot of the game. Um, so, you know, it obviously lends a certain character to the game if you use that system, but it, but it, uh, 
I've having now pl- actually played it for for a number of years. I find it to be a lot of fun. So you actually have rituals as part of the uh, requirements for getting results from spells. No, not from spells, but like you know how it, it's typical that. Um, the GM will just have some magical p- effect happen in a dungeon or something. Or if you want a really par- powerful character to have a protection on their castle or something, there really wasn't any system to it. It was just this is a powerful magical effect, right? Or maybe you would say it's an item. Uh, but the ritual system actually formalizes that and, and is a way of creating magical effects that are more powerful than spells uh, without unbalancing the game. So, yeah. Yeah, I used to play Rollmaster, and they had lots of mechanisms for that kind of thing. But you're right, D&D, yeah. D&D not so much. Right, uh, right. Well, I don't want to completely geek out. I think I may have <laughs> I may have geeked right in my yes. pants. I... <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, well, Dr. Novella, thank you so much for talking about monsters, ghosts, and robots, and artificial intelligence. I don't know if we actually talked about robots, but uh, they're, they're, Little bit. they're on my mind. We, we just we did. We just did, yeah. Just now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard from Dr. Stephen Novella, neurologist, blogger, and host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Our show was hosted by myself, Blake Smith, Dr. Karen Stolzno, and Ben Radford. It was produced with the help of Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society. The intro music was by Kelly Cavagnolo, whose CD is available at cdbaby.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Links to the music and to the many, many blogs, podcasts, and magazines today's show discussed are available in the show notes. All songs used by permission. Thanks for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. They give you headphones and everything, or how does that work? Yes, yes. Massive headphones. I'm actually just using some... I think they call them cans. Um, We're talking about the things on your ears, right? Yes. Okay, cool. (laughs) Coconuts. (laughs) Dirty pillows.